love the chase and the hunt and I set the pace when I'm running I always take what I want and I always give it 100 don't need a bank no I'm funded play the game like it's nothing I'm always thankful for something don't take for granted say humble now wake up hello hello um, hi Pedro, how are you doing? Today I think is a very uh, exciting day for, for all of us. Uh, we have a super interesting interview. Yeah, do. I'm actually quite nervous because I really admire uh, the person we are going to interview. Um, and yeah, let's just, without any further ado, <laughs> introduce him. I think you should do some jumping jacks and like breathe deeply. I think it's going to be yeah, all good help. fun. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> nice. Okay, so let's start. Uh, I'll do a little introduction of our guest. So our guest today is, we need like a drum roll in the post-production. Uh, it's Lawrence Krauss. And for all of those guys that don't know, probably there are not many people that don't know him, but he's an internationally known uh, physicist, best-selling author, and a really great lecturer. And he's currently a president of the Origins Project Foundation and a host of the Origins Podcast where he discusses issues that addresses the global challenges of the 21st century with some of the most interesting minds in the world. Uh, he also has written multiple successful books, such as Physics of Climate Change, A Universe from Nothing, and The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far. Um, and there are a lot of other things I could say right now, uh, but I want to keep the introduction short um, and give a stage to Lawrence. Hello, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for that kind introduction. It's nice to be with you virtually as we're in various parts of the world. And uh, and the only thing I'll add, because I can't help it, because I just finished it, is, is, is my new book, which comes out next May, called The Known Unknowns. Mm. So we can do another podcast when that comes out. But anyway, <laughs> I'm yours now. Okay, so, perfect. So, okay, I'm going to start uh, just uh, thank you again for being here. It's a great pleasure. Um, I have to say, you are the author of many well-known books, uh, and you are a great lecturer. Uh, spreading knowledge about the science. But I have to admit that the book that I like the most uh, is A Universe from Nothing. Uh, I actually, Marta knows, I have it as part of the creation of my will. And I will tell you why I have it there, because to me, it compares to the on origin of a species by Charles Darwin in, in the cosmology, cosmology realm. So it basically tries to explain the plausible explanation of a universe without a creator or a primary cause. And I would like to ask you what drove you to write it, and also why did you study cosmology? Wow, those are a lot of questions. Okay, well, <laughs> how many hours do we have? Okay, um, well, thank you. First of all, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased that you feel that way. I, I uh, it's uh, an honor, of course. Uh, Origin of Species is a major intellectual achievement that changed the world, and and Richard Dawkins was kind enough in the afterwards of of uh, of that book which he wrote to to make a connection of some sort i don't think he was trying to claim it was on the same intellectual level as 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 darwin's masterpiece or nor would i but um but i did try and 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 extend what he was doing i mean his, the 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 work although he didn't intend to do it that way i think he was following the world to try and understand the way it is. And it turned out natural selection is the way we understand the diversity of life on earth. But it nevertheless addressed that one question, you know, where did we come from and, and do you need a creator to create that diversity of life? And the next major realm where religious sort of belief then moved was the creation of the universe. Surely, okay, maybe you don't need God to create life, but surely you need God to create a universe. 
And, and the answer is you don't need that either, potentially. So I think it, there is that intellectual connection, but mm. I would never put my own work on the same level as Darwin's. But, um, mm. but what led me to write it is an interesting question. It's hard to know sometimes, but in this case, probably actually for Richard, for Richard Dawkins, I'd given a lecture at a meeting he asked me to give. Um, and it really, I wanted to discuss, as I did in the book, I wanted to, I'm not trying when I write books to, to enforce some ideological conviction. I'm just trying to get people excited in the, about the universe the way it is. And, and, and I wanted to have a chance to talk about the remarkable revolutions that have taken place in cosmology and our understanding of the universe over the last 50 years. One often needs a conceit. One often needs a hook to try and do that in the physics of Star Trek. I use Star Trek as a, as a hook to try and talk about physics. But in this case, the hook was this question that we've all had, you know, why is there something rather than nothing, to, you know, to, which is really the basis of religion. But so Richard asked me to talk at, at, at a meeting, I think it was in Los Angeles. And I literally, um, you know, I prepared that talk and it was, I, I, I prepared a talk, which I think I called the universe for nothing in a, in a couple of days because he asked me to do it. And, um, and didn't really expect much of it. Um, but there was an amazing reaction to that talk and millions of people started to watch it. And I saw, I saw lines from that talk on, on coffee mugs, you know, that Jesus, you don't, the stars died, so you'd be born. Those were throwaway lines that like many, usually the jokes in my talk, not always, but usually the jokes in my talk are kind of spontaneous. They're not rehearsed. And then, and so, you know, just how I feel at the moment. I'm usually trying to amuse myself as much as anyone else when I lecture just to keep myself interested. Um, and so that was a throwaway line. And then that became, it's since become a, a, a meme, I guess. Um, but anyway, as a result of that interest, it occurred to me, look, there's clearly interest in this subject. And, and, uh, and I approached a publisher, um, uh, uh, who I'd known in another, another country. Actually, she was with me at a, at a, what happened was, um, I was at a, a meeting about communication of science, and the keynote speaker was from the Vatican, and I found that an affront, personally, to to that. The Vatican has done as much as anyone to, to to hide and diffuse and obfuscate science, and I said so, For, and I was viciously attacked by most of the science communicators at the meeting, but this publisher, uh, who I'd known for some time, I guess. Uh, defended me, and and we were clearly kindred spirits in that regard. And I talked to her about this idea, and and she got interested. So I that's she encouraged me to write it. I didn't work with an agent. I didn't. I didn't. I, I signed a contract. Uh, anyway, and I didn't have any idea. One always hopes for the best when one writes a book. You know, you always hope it's going to be very popular. And it's like it's like my scientific papers. One hopes they'll have a huge impact, but usually. It's completely independent of one's hopes. So the papers that I think are going to have the biggest impact often don't. The papers that I've just written quickly that I, I, I don't necessarily think are significant suddenly have an impact. And and I wrote that book relatively quickly for me. I mean, I wrote it within six or eight months, maybe. And and I didn't have any idea of the of the impact it would have right from the day it appeared, but it did, which was very satisfying for me, obviously. And it's and. Uh, and it's been one of those cases where it, it it is maybe it's hard to say if it exceeded my expectations, 
because my expectations are always so high. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but, um, yeah, you know, it's been translated, I don't know, 25, 30 languages and been bestseller in a lot of countries. And, and, and it's impacted on the way people think, which is really more important than anything. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, thanks. I'm glad you liked it. So that's a long answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks very much. No, as I said, it's a, it's a book that drew my attention and it has been all, always one of my favorite books in the sense that, you know, I am a person that is always wondering why we are here. Um, I mean, I know you don't like the whys, <laughs> you like the, the how. No, but, we, but... You know, we, we, all, we all ask the question why I do. I, I, yeah. my, my point in the book is that why questions usually aren't really why questions. But we all ask that question. We're all human. We all ask it why. Yeah. Because we want purpose. And I think the fact that you're willing to say you asked that question is important because a lot of people have those questions and they're not willing to ask them or yeah. even they're not willing to admit that they asked them, especially because they worry that by saying that they asked them, that may suggest that they don't believe in God or something. And that True. May, might think they're bad people or something. True. So I applaud you for asking that question yeah. and admitting you asked it. Actually, anyway. actually, now that you're here, like whenever I ask uh, with friends about the universe, subjects or families, uh, relatives, whatever, uh, there is always this petty approach of people uh, telling me, okay, that sounds interesting, but how do a scientist know how the universe originated, for instance? How, how, how would you convince my grandmother that the Big Bang took place, for instance? And would it be possible to actually look at the Big Bang now with the new uh, telescopes that we have? Well, I'd have to get to know your grandmother better, I think. First <laughs> I fair, um, fair enough. Everyone is different. Everyone responds to different things, and it's true. And I, you know, and, and sometimes it's useful to repeat arguments different ways as a result. But we can see the Big Bang. I mean, that's the point. From 1965, when the cosmic microwave background radiation was discovered, that's radiation that's coming to us in all directions, and it originated in the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And so, in some sense, I mean, and in fact, the first time that was imaged in any sense, like imaged over the sky with the Colby Explorer Satellite, uh, Colby Background Explorer Satellite, or Colby stands for Cosmic Background Explorer Satellite, George Smoot, who was one of the PIs on that, um, immediately became famous around the world, or at least his statement did, or that discovery did, because he said, it's like looking at the face of God. It looks like there's a little face in it in the, in the image that they did, but I don't think that's that's not what he meant. But it really is. It's at that time. It's it still is in many ways the oldest, the only picture we have of the baby universe. And the fact that it's not on everyone's wall is is a sad thing because it's also image as an image. It's pretty, but it's that significant. A lot of people have maps of the world on their wall, and I understand why they're fascinating to look at. But this is a map of the universe that is fascinating. Although it's harder to interpret, maybe, but it's been around, and 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 it sh it should have settled, put to rest any debate about whether there was a Big Bang, because, you know, it's it's there. I you know in my book, I I think in the universe of nothing, I talk about the other image that I have mm. when people don't believe in a Big Bang, which happens to be the light elements, which I have in my wallet. Mm, true. People don't believe the Big Bang I showed them that. Well, it means nothing to them, but <laughs> no. I like to do it. Um, and, um, uh, it, 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 you know, you should carry around that picture if people want to and say, here's what the Big Bang looked like. And then ho hopefully you should also have enough knowledge to be able to interpret what that picture means. Yeah. Which, cool. Rather than say, because you never want to present something and say, here, believe. Yeah. Look at this. 
believe, never tell anyone to believe just on the basis of some image. You know, maybe it's the image of Jesus Christ on a piece of toast that comes out <laughs> of your toaster. That's not a reason to believe in it. Um, and, you know, I've seen people produce <laughs> pieces of toast with my face on them. So that's why I know about that. But, um, uh, but, but you want to be able to explain why that, that, that means what it means. Anyway, so okay. I would show your grandmother that picture and we'd have a nice long conversation <laughs> over a cup of tea or whiskey, depending upon her preference, um, yeah. about, you, about the nature of the universe. Yeah, you would probably convince her for sure. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure. I hope so. <laughs> with a tea or with a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> with the tea or the whiskey. I'd like to know if she's a whiskey drinker, I'd be much more. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> Oh, that's Depends great. how conversation Excellent. goes. <laughs> well, I hope she's older than me anyway. Maybe she isn't. I'm getting old, so maybe she's, I could be a grandfather. She's older. She's a bunch older than you. Hmm. Okay, well, that's great. If she's still asking questions and wants to have discussions, then I'd love to talk to her. My mother passed away this last year at 100, and she was very vibrant until then. So. Sorry to hear. Um, yeah, I have a feeling like when uh, Pedro asked a question about the grandma, that's uh, a lot of people, because the concept of the universe is just so far away and not many people even like saw it, experience it at all, that that's why all these questions are raising, or maybe there's also some religion um, involved in it. And I would like to, because we started talking a little bit about religion, and that's something I'm a bit interested in as well. Um, what is the difference between religion and science? And what is the main sort of dispute between both? Well, there's a huge difference. Um, I mean, there are questions that are of interest to both. Not all questions that are religious are of any interest to science, but but it works the other way around. But but there's nothing else that's similar about them because religion is based on on faith and dogma. It generally, organized religion certainly is on wisdom of the ancients, quote unquote, that you're supposed to accept and believe based on the mere fact that they've been said. And you're supposed to have belief in, 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 in supernatural existence of a divine being without the need for evidence. And both of those things are anathema to science. Science, you shouldn't, first of all, the word belief is, should never be used by a scientist. I don't think it should be used by anyone, but it certainly has no place in science. We don't, I don't believe anything. Some things are likely and some things are unlikely. But the, but we, but to know whether we think they're likely or unlikely, we have to have evidence. And so we don't, we say, like to say, we don't believe anything without evidence, but uh, all of our assertions should be based on evidence. And our predictions should be testable, should be falsifiable. So we'll make, we'll make assertions on the basis of evidence and then make predictions of things we haven't measured. And we'll be, we should be willing to throw those, that, uh, those assertions out if the predictions are wrong. That process is, is, is inherent and is, is what science is. Science isn't the facts that we've discovered about the world. It's the process that led to the discovery of those facts about the world. And all aspects of that science, of that process are not a part of religion. You don't base it on evidence and you don't make predictions that are falsifiable. Hmm. And because, or, and in particular in religion, whenever the people are, are, are silly enough to make predictions, um, uh, uh, the, and when the predictions turn out to be wrong, they still never throw out their their, their hypotheses. And so, 
when they they should be more cautious and that's why that's why people like um St Augustine once said the bible is not a scientific document and 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 the, and the the Vatican which has made the mistake several times it still tries to be more careful and say that you know um it, it's it, they're not uh that they're trying to base their religion on science they pretend they are the Dalai Lama makes that ridiculous statement all the time he makes the statement that and I, I like to criticize the Dalai Lama because a lot of people that don't like Orthodox Christianity or, or, or Islam or Judaism somehow think Buddhism is a kinder, gentle religion. But but it's based on this in many at least, and it has many incarnations. But the the one involving the Dalai Lama is certainly based on a bit of scientific in, uh, nonsense, which is that he's the reincarnation of the last Dalai Lama, and when the Dalai Lama says. If the results of science in any way disagree with the results of Buddhism, we'll throw those results out. And I feel like saying, well, resign. But anyway, that's that odd infuriates him. That's okay. awesome. um, another question, maybe let's bring the, it's going to be a bit of a hypothetical question. We're going to bring Pedro's grandma back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And let's imagine that since we're on the topic of religion, and if you had to convince someone, like, out of the religion by using one inspiring sentence, what would that be? Or maybe a sentence that would start like make them think about potentially questioning religion. Like, do you have anything in your mind? It doesn't have to be no, anything look, super I, serious. I my goal is never to get someone to stop, you know, to leave the religion. I don't have I just want them to try and look, appreciate the world for the way it is. I think an inevitable consequence of that is getting rid of religion, but mm. that's not my goal. I don't really care about what people I don't really care what people believe. It's it's what they do for the most part. And unfortunately, what they do is influenced by what they believe. But the, the you know so. But I think one of the questions that really is something that should provoke people is the statement is asking them why they don't believe in other religions. <laughs> True. Um, mm -hmm. And 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 then and and then you know the natural statement that I'm, and I'm, many people have said it uh, in the past. You know there are thousands of religions and. The only difference between an atheist and a religious person is just one more that you don't believe in, um, and uh, and and so why you know why is your religion right and all the other religions wrong is a, I think a really good starting point, but asking questions is 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 the only way to do this, not making assertions. Yeah, true. Okay, uh, now going back to your book, um, how does the concept of your nothingness differ from the religious concept of nothing? Well, first of all, it's well defined. Um, people criticize me because they say, "Oh, your nothing is not my what the, my nothing is," and I say, "Well, I wish you would have defined your nothing." Um, religion, as far as I can see, that's what amazes me. Religious people, in particular, say, "Oh, you're really not describing nothing." But if you look at the Bible, the only place the Bible discusses nothing is is not non-existence; it's a void. Mm -hmm. They never discuss non-existence per se. There's just an eternal void that God suddenly fills up. And and in 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 at least in the major religions and that goes right back to the Rig Veda, but it's true for 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 Christianity and Judaism certainly and for earlier religions as well. Um and that that empty void is really a very basic kind of nothing. And I point out that that kind of nothing is not is neither empty nor nor avoid it's it's really quite interesting and i discuss that kind of nothing and point out that that the difference in that nothing and something is not so great then namely empty space 
is a, is full of a boiling, bubbling brew of a virtual particles that pop in and out of existence in time scales so short we can't measure them. So that kind of nothing is easy to dispense with or at least described. But there are other, and, and I think that is the nothing of the of the of the Bible at least, and mm. and I think that. That describing it as a void is, 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 you know, it demonstrates the ignorance of the people who wrote down the Bible at the beginning. I mean, you know, it wasn't God. It was, it was peasants who, who wrote it down that didn't even know the earth orbited the sun. So it's not too surprising their, their understanding of nothing was not very sophisticated. But even if they'd been more sophisticated, we, our understanding of nothing has changed in the 20th century, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. But then, as I point out, they're more refined. I mean, so there's there's empty space, but then there's no space and no time. That's a much better version of nothing, and I talk about that. And then there's no space, no time, and no laws, and that's another kind of nothing. And I try and, in spite of the attacks that I get from people about not talking about the right kind of nothing, I try and talk about all of those. And And the key point that I guess is really important that people miss here is when I talk about the fact that our universe arose from nothing, it doesn't imply that there was nothing else some, elsewhere. It implied that our universe did not exist. Mm. The space and time and laws that govern everything, the way things behave in space and time, all of that did not exist at one, and then it existed. I was going to say at one instant, but since time itself may have come into existence then, that saying at one instant is not a good sentence. But, but our universe did not exist, and then it did exist. Now, that doesn't apply that other universes didn't exist or that the laws of physics didn't exist. I'm not making that statement. I'm just saying, hey, isn't it amazing that our universe could come into existence spontaneously given laws of physics and a universe full of a, a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars, could come into existence from nothing, namely didn't exist before, without any supernatural shenanigans. Isn't that amazing? And that's all I'm saying. And and then people, you know, want to make claims about what I'm not saying or what I am saying. But I find inevitably those people have never read actually what I am saying. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest probably. critics never read. I mean, it's the same with my tweets. When I tweet something with a with, with a reference to an article, people who comment on it inevitably never read the article. Hmm. <laughs> so anyway. Okay. Um, how 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 did you? How did the cosmologists uh, reach to this conclusion that there is uh, something from nothing or how you define it in this book? I mean, can you explain quickly, very quickly, how how we pass from knowing nothing about the universe, just thinking we we were only the only galaxy in the universe, and then we we got to know even the geometry of the universe? And I know it's very difficult, but can you... Well, it's, I wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. <laughs> My book no. is about how we got there. And it, we got there by looking and not yeah. being afraid to look and yeah. building new equipment to look. And, and that's the key thing. We never should stop looking outward at the universe because every time we look out at the universe, it'll surprise us because sure. the imagination of the universe is far greater than the human imagination. Yeah, so true. we got there by a series of amazing discoveries. First, you're right. Our galaxy is not the only galaxy. First of all, our, our star is not the only star. Mm -hmm. Which itself was a major discovery, right? And the discovery of Galileo that that we that 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 we orbit our star rather than the other way around, and then the fact that there are not only other stars but other star systems and 
and then are there other galaxies? And then the, the amazing discovery that those galaxies are an average moving away from us, which means the universe isn't static and eternal. It's dynamic. It's evolving. And it had a beginning, probably, and 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 certainly had a beginning in the sense that everything was once much closer together than it is now in what we call the Big Bang. And that begged the question of what the future is. But then there was discovery of the cosmic microwave background, the abundance of light elements, of 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 now gravitational waves. All of these things have changed our picture of the universe in the last century more than in all the centuries that preceded it, and we should celebrate that. and And it should be it should be it should, the the understanding or at least the perspective of what we've done should be part of should be on everyone's lips because it's as fascinating as anything that humans have ever come up with. So one of the things that really astounded me when I wrote that book is that thirty years earlier I couldn't have written that book. I couldn't have even made uh, uh, the whole question of did our universe arise from nothing is not a question that could have even been addressed when I was a graduate student, much less a, a a junior professor. And it is amazing to me that in the that period since then, that the discoveries have led us to allow us to produce an algorithm which plausibly shows how you could get a universe from nothing. That wouldn't have been possible thirty years earlier, and it wasn't the intent of physicists. Mm. It wasn't even my intent. It's just an amazing result of what of what's of looking at the universe and accepting it for what it is, rather than what we want it to be. Yeah, but coming back again to the to the subject of uh, regular Joes like me trying to understand how astronomers know so much. How do they know how the, for instance, how to how do you know that the universe is gonna is gonna end the way it is gonna end, or how do you know the geometry of the universe? I mean, can you quickly explain to normal people? Okay, well, the, the answer to the, your second question is we don't know. It's one of the things in my new book, mm. The Known Unknowns, mm. which is about the things we don't know. We know we don't know about the universe. We don't know how the universe is going to end. I've written scientific papers about it. In fact, I, I and a colleague proved. That in some way we can never know how the universe will end unless we have a theory of everything. I wrote that in 1999. Uh, but so there's a happily a lot that we don't know, which is fine. It means there's mysteries, and I think mysteries keep us all going every day. But um, but knowing things like the geometry of the universe, at least on the observable scale, one can't describe, and one can describe very, and it's relatively simple. You could draw a big triangle, mm -hmm. and uh, on, a, on a on a piece of paper, on a flat piece of paper, a triangle will well. Any European student will know the sum of the angles of the triangle is 180 degrees. European, <laughs> well, not American students, unfortunately. But but um, um, but, uh, but on a sphere, what they may not know is that on a sphere, if you draw the same triangle, the sum of the angles is bigger than 180 degrees, and on a saddle shaped geometry, the sum of the angles is less than 180 degrees. Now, those are two-dimensional pictures, right? Two-dimensional flat piece of paper, two-dimensional sphere, two-dimensional, I, I thought I had a, a ball here, but I don't. But anyway, two-dimensional sphere, two-dimensional saddle. We can picture those things, but the universe is actually three-dimensional, and it's harder to picture a curved three-dimensional space. But the rules are still the same. If you draw a big enough triangle in space, if it's curved, the angles won't be 180 degrees. And the bottom line is, with the cosmic microwave background radiation, we've been able to measure a very big triangle, as mm -hmm. big as you can make it on the observable universe, and find that within the accuracy of our measurement, the angles add up to 180 degrees. 
And that tells us to within the accuracy of our measurements to 1% or better, the observable universe is flat. That doesn't mean flat like a pancake. It yeah, doesn't okay. mean flat like a piece of paper. It means flat in a three-dimensional sense, which means the X, Y, and Z axis. I'll say Z mm-hmm. since we're talking in Spain and Poland mm-hmm. here. Um, but uh, the, the X, Y, and Z axes point in the same direction everywhere in the universe. Okay. In a curved space, if I have the X, Y, and Z axes, mm-hmm. then and they're pointing in one direction here, somewhere else they'll be pointing in that direction. Mm-hmm. Okay? Simple. Yeah, anyone can understand it. <laughs> no, it's super fascinating. I mean, I've always been amazed with the little information that we have. Well, the little information that we have, uh, the, the, the amount of things that we know about the universe. I, I was reading your book, A Universe from Nothing, the one we are talking about all the time. And you were mm-hmm. saying that, that maybe in one trillion years or something, the astronomers in the future would not be able to have those hints to know the origin of the universe or anything, right? Yeah, the f- far future. If there are astronomers who evolve around stars in the far future, and there will be stars and maybe planets two trillion years from now, um, the oldest stars can live that long, um, or the longest lived stars can live that long. Um, in that universe, it's quite likely, given what we know now, that all of the rest of the galaxies in our universe, outside of our own cluster of galaxies, which by then will have collapsed together into one large galaxy, probably. But all the other galaxies in the universe will have disappeared. They'll be moving away faster than light. And for those astronomers, the universe will look cold, dark, empty, empty and static mm-hmm. outside of their galaxy, which is exactly the picture of the universe that we had in 1925. And it's kind of poetic in some sense. that That's the picture that empirically they will get. Now, my suspicion is smart astronomers and physicists will still be able to figure out, even then, that that picture is hiding something. But uh, but at least the direct image would be exactly the image we thought we had of our universe in 1925. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Super fascinating. Um, when we were talking and... Um, I was wondering, and I think the answer is quite obvious, like, uh, are scientists often wrong? And is it quite important for scientists to actually be able to fail and kind of grow from it? Because I have a feeling that in education, this is not allowed much. (laughs) And I see this a lot that, you know, kids get out of schools and they are a bit afraid even to sort of not follow the path that's or the key, you know, that this is the correct answer, this is not the correct answer. If you fail this, that means that the end of the world, which in fairness is not true. Um, yeah, what is your like thinking about it? Do you think people struggle with that a bit these days? Well, you said the answer is obvious and you're right. Um, uh, scientists are wrong, everyone's wrong. And in fact, being wrong is the best part of being science. Every day we want to discover we're wrong because it means there's something left to learn. And you're absolutely right. It's the biggest problem with education in the sense that that not knowing, and I say it in my book, at the very beginning, first sentence of my book, that saying I don't know is the most important thing we can say. And and being willing to admit you're wrong is the most important thing we can say because it means there's left more to discover. So the voyage of education should be a voyage of discovery. And we, you're right, we don't allow kids to be wrong enough as a tool to learn how to be right. I mean, that's the tool that scientists use. And entrepreneurs, by the way, you know, mm-hmm. you, you have to learn how to fail effectively to be an entrepreneur. And and so we want to uh, encourage people to learn how, learn how to fail effectively, how to be wrong, and how to learn that they don't know something that they thought they knew. And, and then to guide them together to ask questions 
to try and how to get the right to to get to an answer, maybe not an answer, but to get to an answer or try and learn how to get to an answer. And you, and you're right, we we education is too much on on saying this is the right way. We know the answer in advance, and you you know, for, I once realized when I was giving a lecture in in Ireland that every time a young person learns something for the first time, for them, it's the first time in the history of the universe that it's been understood, right? It's an, it's, it should be a, it should be a, 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 an aha moment orgasmic. Mm -hmm. It should be, it should be, it should be, uh, uh, exciting. And we should kind of keep it exciting instead of rote memorization. And, and, uh, what we should do is teach kids how to keep being excited by learning the process that will allow them to be lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, um, as you say, you said uh, something about keeping people excited and be willing to be curious and, and, you know, learn and fail. What is it? What is the way for you to be excited and curious? Because I can imagine that what you're doing is actually quite challenging and probably requires quite a lot of motivation and perseverance. So, yeah, what do you do to you? Or is it something natural that you're just like excited about the topic? How at can all you times? not be excited? I mean, look at, <laughs> look at my window. I mean, uh, I, I mean, uh, so I don't understand the question. It's like asking how you can enjoy a sunny day. I mean, um, although I have friends who don't enjoy sunny days. True. So Some people like clouds but, and, you know, autumn rain. Oh, doesn't like the sun. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, I think we all need the motivation of excitement. I think it's the, it's the reinforcement I get from constantly being surprised that keeps me going i guess and you're right in, in the details of doing science we all talk about science being fun and it is but it's you're absolutely right it's not fun it's like anything it's hard work and if you're going to be working on something for a long time then you have to be motivated by something and often scientists motivations are not you know fun or excitement they're certainly not motivated by saying the world i saving the world i was just on a podcast earlier Right, that someone was under the misunderstanding that scientists were out to save humanity. They're not. Mm -hmm. They just enjoy doing what they're doing. But, you know, it, it, and that may be the motivation, and that's a good motivation. But it can also be, you know, the same human motivations, money, fame, fortune, relationships, anything, you know. And and so it's hard. It's, you know, one of the biggest mis one of the biggest secrets is uh, that I'm going to reveal to you is that scientists are human beings. <laughs> and um, and they're motivated by the same things that other human beings are motivated by. And let's not forget that. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, do you have any favorite scientist, scientist in history? Well, I have a lot of scientists. Like People always ask me what my favorite X is. And I always okay. say the answer. You may have heard me say, I just don't think that way. I okay. don't think of the world hierarchically. There are lots of things I like, but I rarely put them hierarchically. But there are a lot of my scientists who who are the ones I admire a, a lot, and the ones that come to mind are the standard ones. I mean, you know, uh, in the last century, Richard Feynman, obviously a, a person that impacted mm. me a lot, but Einstein, Heisberg, Dirac, before that, you know, I mean, Darwin, um, mm. Newton, Galileo, and among my colleagues, there are people I admire, among the people I've been fortunate to work with, um, great scientists, Steve Weinberg, Shelley Glashow, other other. Other scientists, you know, won the Nobel Prize for better or worse, but but even and some of my students. Uh, so I've um, there are tons of scientists I admire, and I admire the ones who I guess I admire most. 
the and, ones who, uh, who the ones who, who uh, the, let me finish that sentence. Mm-hmm. I, I admire most the ones probably who do things that I don't think I could do. You know, I, and and I say that honestly. I mean, there's there are, you know, I I know I know what I can do and what I can't do. I think, or at least what I try to do, what I can do well and what I don't do as well. And I think I think I'm I'm more amazed, maybe not admire, but I'm more amazed by those people who can do things that I can't do. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair. Uh, I was going to ask you. Uh, we interviewed Avi Loeb. I don't know if you know him, the astronomer. Avi Loeb. Yeah, I've yeah, yeah, known him for a while, a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was very kind with us. Uh, but one of the things he told us, uh, because you know he had this uh, science uh, community backlash reaction against his yes. opinion on on one. Yeah, he was very sad uh, about. He, he he was kind of thinking that uh, sci- scientists are devoting a lot of efforts in theories like a string theory and which are okay, but uh, they are not devoted efforts for saving humankind from disasters or trying to explore other civilizations. Uh, what, what, what is your view on that? Well, I know Avi. He, he write, he, Avi writes a lot, and he doesn't have a much of a filter. So he's very good. <laughs> but he writes everything, he's, everything that every thought that occurs to him each day becomes a paper. So, And that's, you know, and, he, and he's productive as a result. And, 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 but... Let me say, I think the reaction was not so much to his idea mm-hmm. that this thing was an alien spacecraft. It was to the promotion of that idea. Mm-hmm. First of all, most people thought it was wrong, his idea. And, and I, many, most people still think it's wrong for good reasons. And so every scientist who approaches an idea should expect the rest of the community to come out and say, explain why they think it's wrong. That's the way science works. It works by constant attack of ideas. That's... Sorry, but that dialectic is 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 an essential part of science. Science, the scientific community, adjudicates ideas by by either fall, you know promoting them or attacking them and seeing and that, and it's important that they be attacked and explored so all from all sides mm-hmm. to see if they hold water. So I had no problem with his idea. I mean, a lot of his ideas, I thought it was wrong, but I didn't mind him suggesting it. But mm-hmm. but but promoting it is a different idea and that, different thing, and that's. That I think people objected to because I don't think you should promote among the public scientific mm. ideas that don't have scientific currency. Mm. I've seen a number of people do it. They write papers. They write a scientific paper. It gets no currency, no re- no citations, no references, no follow-up work. Other scientists don't think it's interesting. And then they write a book about it. And it gives the public, who are otherwise unaware... The idea that this idea has somehow got a level of importance in science that it doesn't have. I know three people I know as scientists, and I'm not going to name their names, who've done that. And I, and I disrespect that community. Mm. Look, I don't think, if you haven't convinced the scientific community, then I don't see why you should be trying to convince the public. Um, unless, you know, I mean, I, you know, unless you somehow figure you're being, you know, marginalized and oppressed. And, and I can guarantee you, obvious is neither. Yeah. marginalized nor oppressed. I can see your point because, well, he was more of the idea that uh, public should have the right to know everything, even if it's not yet uh, proved. But I see well, your point. I mean, yeah, but little, yeah, well, that's, that's, a, that's a nice sentiment, but it's nonsense because yeah. there's so much scientific... So the public has a right to know every scientific paper that's produced, but most of the scientific papers are wrong mm. or uninteresting. Yeah. And, and therefore, there's a very limited set of things that make it all the way to the public. 
Mm. And, and I think the ones that should make it all the way to the public are scientific ideas that do have currency mm. rather than speculative ideas. It's look, it's all right for him to have a speculative idea and say, look, this is incredibly speculative. And I'm telling you, and, but you should be honest and say, but none of my scientific co colleagues agree with it or think it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what, what is your view on the, on fields like quantum theory? which is really quite misunderstood by the public, um, I include myself. And that gives way for many charlatans to talk, uh, to write books on, on the well, you know, consciousness and quantum. Yeah, I've written about that. It, it, it offends me tremendously. Quantum mechanics is, of all the areas of physics, the one that's most utilized by quacks and charlatans to build people of money. And they write books called The Secret and all sorts of other things. And it's unfortunate. They use the fact that quantum mechanics is complex and weird and strange. And they use the fact that the public doesn't understand it to misrepresent it and promote their own snake oil. Mm. And it offends me tremendously. And I've argued about it more than most physicists. Mm. I've argued that the American Physical Society, when I was on its um, board, uh, I forget, public affairs panel, that they should actually make a statement that this stuff is nonsense. And I, mm. and I couldn't get them to make a statement. And it's unfortunate because a lot of people I know, including some people I, I really do know, have been built of money and livelihood by these charlatans. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm offended by anyone who misuses science and misuses it by by exploiting the public's ignorance, hmm. yeah. personal gain. But it's scary because uh, I've... And I've, that includes some religious people, by the way, yeah, I know. as well. But I mean, it's scary because I read a couple of books written by quantum physics theorists that they were basically saying that if there is, if there's, if there, if there isn't an observer, the world wouldn't exist, right? Yeah, um, well, I, I think that, that was, I think they're misrepresenting things because yeah. that's the, 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 you know, the quasars that produced the, the gravitational waves that were discovered, uh, in 2015 by LIGO came from a collision of two black holes 1.3 billion years ago. And those black holes existed and collided well before humans were ever, um, uh, yeah. before the earth existed. Mm -hmm. And it's ridiculous to suggest that somehow if we hadn't evolved that those, those gravitational waves wouldn't have existed. I, I mean, it's just ludicrous. And so I think people are saying that don't are really thinking what they're, mm -hmm. what, don't really mean what they're saying. Mm -hmm. I think we've uh, the same interview that we had with uh, with, with Avi. Um, we talked a little bit about the, um, um, but some of the scientists tend to kind of crave fame and like do certain things, certain certain things to maybe get some awards. And also, yeah. when we are talking right now, we also mentioned that one of your colleagues just received the Nobel Prize for better or worse. Um, could you a little bit expand on this? Like, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I mean, you know, it's uh, <laughs> prizes are arbitrary, right? I mean, and 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 so, um, um, what I mean is that that doesn't determine that we the public focuses on prizes, but it doesn't always determine who's a great scientist or whose contribution is important. Now, I admire the Nobel Committee tremendously. I've been involved. I was a nominator for ten years, and and I've been the Nobel prizes, but. They take very seriously what they do. And I can think I can say with confidence that in general, with almost one or two minor exceptions, they've been very careful that no one who's won the Nobel Prize didn't quote unquote deserve the Nobel Prize, namely that their work wasn't important and had a big impact. Um, 
there are lots of people whose work was important and had a big impact who didn't win the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way it is. It's arbitrary. Every year they choose and there's certain people that can do it. Um, and, um, but it also doesn't mean, so what they're honoring is the work and they're honoring the scientists who did the work, but that doesn't, but there are some, like, for example, the causing microwave background radiation, which I said is one of the more, most important discoveries of, you know, telling us the Big Bang really happened, was discovered by two guys who had not the slightest idea what they were doing. They weren't mm -hmm. looking for it. They happened upon it by accident. They didn't even understand its significance. They were, that significance was explained to them by three physicists down the road, each of which individually, each of whom individually should have, it was worthy of a Nobel Prize for various reasons. Um, only one of them later won it because the other two died. And, um, but, um, uh, the, um, and so there's no sense, it, you know, and that was an example of where the prize was well deserved because it convinced the world of something, but it didn't mean, but the scientists who did it were not great scientists. Sorry. And so that's okay. But, and when I also say for better or worse, um, you know, it's nice that it promotes science. For one day a year, people follow who wins the Nobel Prize and somehow it promotes science. But it, it, it unduly, you know, focuses on individuals in a field which it, science progresses as a community. And very rarely the individuals, I mean, individuals do have an impact. And some individuals have more of an impact than others, of course. But we all do it, in, you know, by by communicating with each other. And so it gives the public the idea that that that, that it's sort of science is done by lone Einstein sitting in 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 rooms, you know, at, late at night thinking about the world, and that's just not the way science is done. And also, for better or worse, it's also uh, you know, for I have met, I've known maybe a hundred people who won the Nobel Prize uh, are, are people I know or friends of mine, let's say, um, and you know, it has an impact on them too, and and that could be for better or worse as well. Mm, true. Like I, even though I wasn't spe specifically searching for Nobel Prize uh, winners, I could see social media full of the videos when you could already, the pictures were everywhere and there were videos where they were welcomed by their peers. Like it's, as I saw some comments from them as well, that it just immediately changed their life, at least for, for a oh, while. It now, does. So. Look, I know it changes their life in many ways. And unfortunately, and for some of them, <laughs> how can I put this in a way that doesn't sound self-serving? I have been fortunate in my life to have a lot of public public you know um to have an impact on the public and have a have a public profile. And what you learn is to deal with that. We deal with that one of many ways, but one of the ways you do deal with it is to not believe the press clippings that are written about you, whether they're good or bad, yeah. because they're equally f false. And I think people who haven't had that experience and are suddenly thrust into the public eye, um, that can be really difficult. It's I difficult for scientists or athletes or actors or anyone. Um, it's something you have to learn to deal with, um, with that level of fame. And I, I mean, I have my own, I, I'm aware enough to know that my level of fame is, is different than a lot of my friends in science and in acting and other areas who, you know, are famous, but in different ways. But, um, but, you know, you have to learn to deal with that at some level, and uh, it's difficult, mm -hmm. especially in the modern world where social media changes everything so quickly.
Yeah. Do people write mean comments about you and, or have you ever went on the bench of like just searching for bad comments or are you trying to stay away from actually reading for yourself? Sometimes I, in my, maybe in a, in when I'm in an interested in self-harm, I may be doing that. I don't think I am, but sometimes I'm, I'm being, um, masochistic. Anytime I open Twitter comments, I'm being masochistic. On Twitter is like, yeah, but, 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 you know, but I write on Twitter, so I'm, I should be prepared for that. So of course people, I've never been, I, I, I've had bad, I've had hate mail for as long as I've been a public scientist or a public personality or a celebrity or whatever you want to call it. And in general, it doesn't bother me. Sometimes, it, you know, I, it bothers me when people lie about me. I think it bothers anyone, but, but, um, I think it, it, I mostly get upset at some level when people distort what I say, but I learned that there's nothing I can do about it. And I've learned generally the best policy is to ignore it. And I really do have friends of mine that I admire tremendously in different fields who really do ignore it, who really have what people say or do have no impact. And the fact that they're famous has very little impact on them. It's one level, except it gives them the freedom to do what they want, but they don't fixate on it or they don't worry about it. And that's a great gift. What has been the hardest and most rewarding moment, rewarding moments of your career? <laughs> you asked me for most again, and I don't know. Well, um, maybe something that comes to mind. Them. I mean, <laughs> okay. I think that when I first realized it was possible that the dominant energy of the universe was resided in empty space, mm. which was an idea that no one believed at the time. Mm. Um, was very rewarding. And the fact when I, you know, and the fact, I guess, when I, we eventually published that idea and then it turned out to be true. That was obviously very rewarding. Mm. And it was true enough that it won the Nobel Prize for the people who confirmed it. But, but, uh, um, and that was a very rewarding thing. It's nice to know that for a while there's something about the universe that I recognized that had never been sort of appreciated before it was nice. Um, and you know, and, and then, I, and then it's been rewarding when I proposed lines of research that have since become important, like the search for dark matter and uh, techniques that are now used in the basis of experiments. So make, feeling you make a con feeling that you make a contribution is rewarding. Um, being having the least satisfying is when when people have distorted what I've said or lied about me as an individual, or as a scientist, and, uh, and have done so to some extent with impunity. I think that's and that's again throughout my career that's happened at certain times and it's been very discouraging. Except you eventually have to realize that that's just you know to ignore it and move mm -hmm. on. Um, yeah. And, and I just think that's the way. You, otherwise, you live your life bitterly forever. And 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 I have a policy that um, that living well is the best revenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I guess it's part of being uh, in the mainstream. I mean. There's always going to be people. More and more. Going to be people that are going to uh, attack you, and that's, that's yeah. Better. I mean, the more and more you become a target. Yeah. And uh, and and a, and and to be even more explicit, be a successful, somewhat white male now, middle middle aged, or now I'm past middle aged, but um, is is it makes you a particular target? I think. Mm. In this program, we always ask our guests uh, to give uh, an advice on listeners, an advice on life. What would be that advice for you? 
That's why the other thing I don't do is give advice. Um, <laughs> okay. Everything that comes to your mind. <laughs> well, I tell I, 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 the only advice I generally give young people is to say, "Don't let the bastards get you down." Mm. Okay, I'll give you the advice that my friend Werner Herzog, a filmmaker, once gave to me. Um, um, what do you put it? Um, chin up and down with the enemy. <laughs> I guess what he said. <laughs> but, but anyway, I don't let's say think the enemy, but don't let the bastards get you down. Basically. And you know, Richard Feynman said the same thing. Don't, don't. Why do you worry about what other people think? Um, mm. Bottom line is, at some point, do what you think you should do, and keep doing it, and um, enjoy doing it, and try to be, you know, try to be good while you're doing it. You know, I guess that is advice, but I don't really mean it that. Way. Okay, <laughs> thanks. I think there's a lot of good materials for tattoos, like potentially legs or something. And that's good. Um, what is that that excites you these days the most? Like, could be about research you do or excite me these days. Sport or the view. But every day I get excited by something different. So, yeah. um, you know, when I finish a book, I'm excited about it for a while. I must admit, I you know, I try to get over that. Uh, you know, again, people I admire. I, I brought Woody Allen before, but he always amazes me. He always says when he finishes a movie, he forgets about it, he never thinks about it, again, never sees it again, never watches it again. And, you know, it's harder for me to do that. I get, I, it's like a baby, you know, you have this thing, you spend a lot of time, you a lot more than nine months usually producing. And, um, but it is, it's out there and there's nothing you can do about it. But it's nice to be excited about the work for a while. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about, I'm always excited about my most recent book in that sense. I like my books, but I'm excited. And then I'm excited about thinking what I might do next. That's usually the way. It's easy for me to then say, I'm always I finished it, but what am I going to do next in terms of books or something else? So I'm excited by the, by the, um, by the podcasts I'm doing and some of the people I'm about to have uh, have chance to talk to, um, and I'm excited about the trip I'm going to take this week. And hopefully, I'll meet a lot of young people and have a chance to excite some of them, and also see some of the world that I've never seen before. Um, I was just in Greenland, and I'm, that was exciting to me to see that part of the world, and it's amazing. And I'm excited about the fact that I don't know what I'm going to be doing. What I'm most excited about is that I don't know what I'm going to be doing two months from now. And that's, to me, what's kept me going most of my life. That's great. That's the way to go. <laughs> and I think you're going to have a lot of great adventures. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the book that you are currently writing? Okay, I'll tell you a little bit, and then we'll talk again in May, next May, when it comes out. Um, yeah, yeah, just a, just a teaser. Just, just <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like... <laughs> okay, the known unknowns. It's what we know we don't know about the universe, and it, it's it's written in five. Se it's five sections, five large. Not, I guess you call them chapters, but they're sections. Um, time, space, matter, life, and consciousness, and what we know we don't know about all of those things. And it's been a it was a journey for me. A lot of those I know a lot about. Some of them I, I had to learn a lot about. And it's exciting. And I hope that it will inspire. I think what I put at the very end of the book is it will inspire <clears throat> some young person, as I was inspired when I, say, read a book by Richard Feynman when I was young, A Character of Physical Law. It first made me realize how much there is to still learn about the universe and that I wanted to be a part of helping to further things. I hope that when some young person will take that book and be motivated to, to carry on, then that would be lovely. Great. So it's coming out in May, right? Coming out in May in, 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 in the United Kingdom 
Um, it's okay. called The Known Unknowns in the United States. It's called The Edge of Knowledge. It'll come out about the same week in May then. And it already is coming out in Spain, but I don't know when. But the Spanish rights have been sold. I know that. And I think the Swedish rights have been sold. Um, and I think it's Chinese rights already, but, and, but I don't know when it'll come. So when I say England, it's England and Australia and that's, mm-hmm. and that, that sort of thing. And then the United States and Canada. And, and so anyway, in May, in May, uh-huh. May 11th, I think is when the British version comes out. Okay. Everybody puts that in the calendar. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can always waiting. buy it in advance, which is even better. Oh. And it'll be out in <laughs> audiobook and electric book too. I'll, I'll, I'll narrate the audiobook as well. Oh, that's cool. I haven't done that yet, but. But I, I mean, for this book, but I'll be doing that sometime in the new year. That's really fun. I look at Pedro's face and I know what question he wants to ask, but I'll ask as this question instead. <laughs> the category of question is rather funny because, um, so our friend Pedro is a big fan of Johnny Depp and we both know that you're a great friend of Johnny Depp. And I guess Pedro wants to ask if there's any chance that we could ever host him in the podcast. Uh, that's just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> just a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. But in reality, yeah. you like him a lot as well. well I, so. have, I have no control over Johnny Depp. So, yeah, of course. So I'm fortunate to have been a friend of his for um some time and in fact i thought of tweeting i'm actually wearing a bright uh necklace that he gave me that i have and i someday i will i will uh, maybe show that because it's one that you see on it uh, on it that he he wears as well anyway it was i'm lucky man i'm a lucky man in many recent ways i'm a big fan and i'm a big fan of johnny depp and one of my biggest you know, if you ask me for favorite moments, I guess one of my biggest favorite moments was when I first met Johnny Depp, and he told me what a fan of, uh, of what that he's a big fan of mine. Um, yeah, because he's intelligent, he is, and that was a shock to me <laughs> beyond belief. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, and the next day, I got a tattoo, Johnny, in a heart. <laughs> no, I don't have any. I don't have any tattoos of Johnny. Neither does Johnny have any tattoos of me. I'm happy to say. Yet you never know. Yet. Yeah, too well. One day. I think those days are over, maybe. But, but anyway, he uh, he has a lot of tattoos, and I guess a lot of space for tattoos still. <laughs> <laughs> On eleventh of May, when your books come out, maybe that's the date. Well, anyway, um, I'm I'm I, he's been very generous to me and given me a number of things over over the year. He was, and and uh, I don't talk about a lot of them in public. But anyway, he's a mm. wonderful man, and and I'm. You know, I'm all, it's happened with Johnny and other people. When there's someone I'm really a fan of for one way or another, and I discover that they're fans of mine, uh, it's really un, a very, very strange and unbelievable thing. Um, now, um, he's going to That was, <laughs> I had, I had you on, on Do Not Disturb for, uh, and it ended because we were going to end it right now. So that was perhaps the first <laughs> signal that we should end this. Yes, I think we can totally end. We don't want to steal more of your time, uh, yeah. but it was great okay. to have you here. Thank you a lot. Uh, okay. It was a great Thank pleasure. you very much. I enjoyed it very much. I really did enjoy it. I hope to talk to you again. We did. In, 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 when the new May. book comes out, and we'll be happy to tweet. Yeah, so. that, that will be a dream. And yeah. I think I'll be coming to Spain to promote the new book, I hope. So maybe oh. I'll see you. <laughs> so, great, perfect. That will be <laughs> great. Thank you, take care. Have a nice day. When I'm running, I always take what I want and I always give it 100. Don't need a bank, no, I'm funded. Play the game like it's nothing. I'm always thankful for something. Don't take for granted, stay humble. Now wake up! It's time to look at the enemy. Look in the mirror if he is no friend of me. It's not working out, maybe it's